I'm reminded this morning that when we think, we are shaping our lives. If we think things that are negative, true but negative, then it shapes our attitude. And that attitude then shapes the words that come out of our heart, the choices that we make, the actions of our day and our life. And on the other hand, if we set our minds on the truth of God, these truths that we sing and these truths that we read in his word and that I talk about week to week, we can store them like facts, like you can have a pantry and you can chalk it full of all kinds of foods and goods for a rainy day or a difficult day. You can be a survivor, you know, a survivalist. But if you don't use it, so when we store these truths in our hearts, it really depends on letting it influence the way we see the world, the way we see ourselves, the way we see one another, the way we negotiate the situations that we're right in the middle of. And you know what that is when you let it influence the way you think? And mind you, it's, it's kind of maybe rocky at first. You know, we're not always that sophisticated. You know, we're, but we learn as we go. We learn by trial and error. We learn by practice. We learn by getting knocked down and getting up again. But when we allow that truth what God whispers into our heart because we've hidden his word there, when we exercise that, the Bible calls that faith. Faith. That's the faith that saves. That's the faith that affects your choices. That's the faith that prompts you to smile in the midst of difficulties. That's the faith that makes you believe that song you just sang because you know God is in the business of making new wine, but new wine involves crushed grapes. Sometimes we don't like the crushing, but we sure like the taste of that good wine that God makes out of our lives. And our faith is confirmed. Our faith grows stronger as we rely on his truth. These, look, these are, sometimes we feel like we have to know the whole Bible. You have to be a, a Bible scholar. Well, that's what I set out to be, and then in the end, I realized, not that it was a waste of time, but in the end, it just confirmed that there are these these great truths that we can hold in our two hands and count on our ten fingers, if you will. In other words, if you let them inform and influence your life, then you'll begin to grow as you see God's grace at work. His grace is not just in forgiveness. His grace is not just 
in the forgiveness that cost him his son beyond price, that is a demonstration of his love. His grace is expressed also when we exercise that faith because then the benefits, the benefits, the benefits of seeing how walking with him brings delight, brings level-headedness, brings balance, brings I'm sorry, brings I was wrong, brings also that bright outlook when your brother or sister, your child, your parent, the person in front of you is so broken and discouraged. You have a, a word of mercy. You have an outlook that brings healing to whatever the situation is because you're not knocked down yourself by the little things of everyday life. I'm a sage now, so take what I'm saying. This is, this is free. I'm just giving it to you. It's grace. And it's also really at the heart of today's message, which is from John chapter 8, verse 7. If any one of you is without guilt, without sin, then throw your rock, cast your stone. Let me read it to us from the Gospel of John. It begins, they went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him. And he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses... He commanded us to stone such women. That means to throw rocks until they're dead. They would bury them often up to the neck. They can't move. And then those who have accused, those who bore witness, they throw the rocks first. And then the rest of the crowd. It becomes kind of a a group or capital punishment. I got hit in the head with a golf ball. Um, I suppose I've probably gotten hit in the face with a soccer ball a few times, things like that, you know. But that that shot in the head with with the golf ball was off the tee. So I I don't have any idea what the velocity was, but it's a little bullet of sorts, you know, with dimples because it's smiling. And it it accelerates. And here I am, I'm just, I'm driving along, and the guy hits it off the tee on the next fairway, and it 
hooks right into my head here. Uh, so I just shook my head and went on. No, that's not true. <laughs> Stoning is painful. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? And this they said to test him. That they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said, Let him who's without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And really not completely alone because there had been a crowd there that he had been teaching. So this all happened kind of in the center, like a stage in the round. And now she stands alone. The religious leaders have trickled away the older ones first because they're smarter. They're wiser. Or they should be. So that's just a hunch. But if you're not getting smarter, if you're not growing wiser, something's wrong. You're not paying attention. And the smarter ones, the wiser ones, get it first. They get it, and they walk away. I might just add that uh, even though I feel very, very young, uh, it was a few years ago that um, I realized that with age, as you get a little older, a little bit wiser, whether it's uh, because you sit in a classroom or you go to the school of hard knocks, as they say, that it becomes easier to say, you're right, I'm wrong. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing. It's good for your marriage. It's good for parents with their kids. It really is. You need to show that example to the kids, too. Maybe it's because we who are a little older grew up in homes where you never heard mom or dad say they were sorry. And so maybe we have a society that's perpetuating that kind of a false face that says, I don't do any wrong. You're the only one in the room that does wrong. And maybe that has crept into the church, and that's why James 5.16 is such a mystery to us when it says, confess your sins one to another. And maybe that's why when people say to me, oh, you're so transparent, you know, you just, I, I should be just like you. How can I be an example? How can I kind of set the pace? 
How can I say, follow me, if I don't think I'm a sinner? How can we lead real lives in Christ? I mean, how can we be authentic? How can we speak truth? How can we be integrated, or what we say, a person with integrity, which means that everything's connected. You know, there aren't hidden things that, like a house with a room that's locked and nobody goes in there. Sometimes we have that in our lives. Well, how can we be like that in Christ? And how can that person be a leader? We all know, you all know you're sinners, don't you? Even if the word is a little bit archaic to our social sensibilities at this day and age, we all know what sin is. It's the fact that we're faulty. Even as Jared prayed, you know, the darkness, the evil in the human heart. And we mask it and we want to avoid it for sure. We, we want to, man, it feels good to get, you know, I hadn't shaved for a couple of days. I went to the father-daughter thing last night. I, I got my car washed yesterday after about six months because I couldn't pick up my daughter for a date in a dusty, dirty, grimy car. It looked like it had been on the ranch for about three weeks. Man, I felt good, all cleaned up, sideburns even. But don't let that confuse you. The only one who really does the cleaning up is the Lord in our lives. And man, that's a good thing. It affects everybody around us in a wholesome and good way. Have I finished this passage reading it yet? Goodness sakes. I don't even know why I prepare a sermon sometimes because I could just uh, work on the fly. As they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, sir. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. Jesus didn't ask if she's guilty. He just asked whether anyone condemns her. but he assumes her guilt. She is guilty. So he says, go and sin no more. And I think his question probably allows her to, to really take deep inside. I don't know how you sing the songs in the morning you should sing them with your whole heart. I, I was reared with hymns. I love hymns. 
Hymns have great theology. Hymns talk about the Lord in the third person. Have you ever noticed that? You're singing about him in the third person, like he's over there in another conversation. But it's, the talk about him is really good, and it's good to rehearse those things. What we sing now is in the second person. It's you and me, we're singing to the Lord directly. And the words are a little bit more, you know, familiar, down home, kind of the sort of talk we engage in, like we do in relationships with people that are intimate and important with us. We talk face to face. We express things that touch our heart. This question Jesus puts to her helps her to absorb the full reality of the fact that she no longer has to fear anything. Jesus has set her free. He says, neither do I condemn you. I forgive you. That's what he's saying to her. I forgive you. I don't know how many ways you say forgiveness. And there are a lot of words in the Greek language there are only two that are used by and large. I mean, predominantly two in the New Testament. The one that's used the most is used right here. Or it's not used right here, but it's used everywhere else. We're going to look at it in just a moment. But it means to cancel a debt. There are, do you know how many ways you can show forgiveness? Do you have to say, I forgive you? And some people need to hear it, and we ought to be able to say it, but how do you express forgiveness? Can you see forgiveness at work? Do you recognize it? Do you know how to demonstrate it? It's not just a word. And here we see the actions of forgiveness. It's all contingent upon forgiveness. And Jesus says, go and sin no more. Sin no more. Certainly it involves the sin of adultery. Don't keep doing that. Sin no more. You who are without sin, cast the first stone. Inflict the condemnation by inflict, I mean put into action the penalty for the sin, the payback, the cost incurred and the debt paid, the pain, the suffering equal to a monetary value on the loss of something in a wrongdoing. You who are without sin, cast the first stone. It's one thing to drop the rock in your hand. It's another thing to forgive. It's one thing to drop the rock in your hand. It's another thing entirely to forgive. Neither do I condemn you, Jesus says. Go and sin no more. What if she had been brought before Jesus the next day? This is a really important question. What if she was brought back the very next day 
same charges, caught in the act of adultery. Raises the question that Peter raises with Jesus in Matthew 18. In Matthew chapter 18, starting at the very beginning of the chapter, Jesus begins teaching. He's talking about the kingdom of God, the rule of God in our hearts, entering the kingdom. And what it, does it look when you, when, like when you enter into the kingdom? What kind of people belong in the kingdom of God? You know, are citizens, if you will. What language do they speak? What kind of money do they spend? What kind of customs do they follow? What are the people of the kingdom like? And Jesus is teaching about that. And he teaches in the first five verses that they need to have a humbled heart. They need to be people of a humble heart. And then he goes on in verses 6 and 7 to talk about the importance of looking out for people weaker than ourselves. And then in verses 8 through 10, he talks about the necessity of accountability and recognizing in our own lives the power of sin so that it doesn't overcome us and that we should then have a puffed up and arrogant heart and neglect the weaker people and do the, all the wrong things instead of some of these right things. And then in verses 12 through 14, he talks about the great value of reconciliation and restoration. How much joy there is, is when someone is found that is lost or someone comes home that's gone away. And then in verses 15 through 20, he talks about what to do when wronged. What to do when you're wronged. When somebody hurts you, insults you, steals something from you, all the things that we fear. If there are bad moments in our life, many of them are connected to such faults, wrongs, hurts, pains. And then we come in verse 21, because I imagine Peter has been listening carefully, maybe taking notes. I think he wants to be a good student. He's really thinking all of this through. He's taking it to heart. He's a disciple of Jesus. He wants to be, he wants to characterize these very things that Jesus is saying characterizes the people of the kingdom of God that Jesus has brought, which is at the very heart of his message. And so Peter says, how many times does my brother have to sin against me um, that I should forgive him? Seven, which is a pretty generous figure. I mean, I'm, I like Peter. He's thinking big. I don't know that I would have thought seven. I, I probably would have now, now that I'm a pastor, but along the way, I don't think my number would have started very generously. And Jesus says, you know the number, 70 times 7. And we, we do the math. Not that I'm that good, I used a calculator. But you see, that's not the point. It's not the number. It's not the 490. 
Seven times seven, 70? Although in numerology, that's, that's kind of a special calculation. It's just limitless. But that's exactly what Jesus makes his point because he goes on to tell a parable just to illustrate this. There was a king. Makes sense, huh? The king and a kingdom. The kingdom of God. There was a king, although don't push the metaphor to the breaking point. It's just a story to make a point. That's the point of a parable. And he had a servant who owed him 10,000 talents. Wow, that's a monetary figure. A talent was a sum of, of what we call money. And the, the king was, you know, his accountant probably came in for a monthly report on what the kingdom was producing. And here is this servant who owns this huge sum. I mean, it's an astronomical sum. It's a sum, a, a servant, little, certainly not a servant, but anyone that they could repay that. 10,000 talents. It's what we call hyperbole. It's exaggeration to make a point. We, we engage in hyperbole all the time, right? I hear people talking hyperbole. Oh, everybody. Nobody. Always. Never. Have to. Must. That's hyperbole. Don't engage in that. I'm really serious about this. You're going to be a wreck. You're going to be full of drama. Every time you hear yourself saying, always, never, everybody, nobody, you cut that out. If you eliminate that and find a more accurate description of what's going on, you'll regulate your emotional life a lot better. I just threw that in for free. I'm just full of public service announcements today. Well, the servant begins to beg because he, there's no way that he can repay this, and the king says, I'm going to have to, what are we going to do with this account? He can't pay up, so sell him. Sell him. Sell his wife. Sell his children. Sell them off. And the servant begins to beg. And I, I can just see him with his hands up pleading for his life. And the king looks upon the servant, and he, he experiences this great compassion. It just kind of sweeps over him. And he says, this is kind of amazing, go. Go. Your debt is canceled. Now, this you may find surprising. That's the very word that is used most in the New Testament for forgiveness. Your debt is canceled. It's taken away. It's canceled. He not only released the servant, he released his debt. The king had compassion. And I, I can't even imagine what the servant was feeling. Maybe it, he's feeling what we should be feeling when we think back on things. You know, I, brought, I talked at the beginning a little bit about thinking because I know the past is past, but 
We should forget the things that are negative. We certainly shouldn't let them control our thinking in the present, but we should be remembering things of great importance, helping hands, encouragement, people who have added so much to our life, and especially what, what happened on a Friday on a cross when the gospel, the good news, tells us that God in flesh gave his life for you and me that we might understand his love for us. And in that act, he canceled the debt. A lifetime of debt amassed. He canceled it. Maybe we should try to feel that. Maybe we should try to understand that. Because then maybe we could begin to understand what this servant understood and felt. But anyway, he... uh, Disbelief, shock, relief. Maybe he won that, you know, Powerball or that 1.5 billion mega lottery this last week. A lot of people are poor because of that, by the way. Sadly, sadly. So he goes, uh, he leaves the king's audience and he comes upon a fellow servant and of course, the servant, he's reminded that servant owes me a hundred denarii. And uh, after a greeting, of course, he says, uh, I was just reminded you owe me a hundred denarii. And we, we would imagine after what just happened, he would say, look, no hurry. Anytime you can. In fact, uh, maybe he's going to work out a payment plan at at worst. But no, it's worse than that. He grabs him by the throat and he says, pay up. And some of their servants hear about that, see about, see it happening, and they go and tell the king, and the king brings him back. You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had on you. And the king handed him over to be tortured until he could pay his entire debt. Now that is the the crux of this whole parable. And that is also the crux of the seven times 70 versus the seven times. How many times should I forgive? someone who sins against me. You see, it is that deep contrast between 70 times 7 and 7 times that we see the contrast between the king's unconditional mercy and the servant's lack of mercy. Is it possible that this contrast helps us to understand what God has done for us? And the difference between 70 times 7 and 7 times is not math. It's not a calculation. It's the nature of forgiveness. The king's forgiveness was outrageous. Outrageous grace and forgiveness grounded in the nature of God. That's the standard. 
The Lord's Prayer reminds us, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Forgiveness is not easy. Thought Helmut Tilaka, a German theologian who lived through the ravages of World War II and Nazism. He said, this business of forgiving is by no means a simple thing. I am always on the point of forgiving, but I never forgive. I am far too just. But he went on to make clear the remedy. He concluded, and it was his realization that God had forgiven his own sins and had given him another chance. That's where he found the power to forgive. God's grace once experienced. And that should transform us. That's why a couple times, and I remember when I was young how startling it was, where Jesus says, if you don't forgive, God won't forgive you. That's pretty disturbing. That's pretty disturbing. And what is the point? Jesus makes it clear in this parable. See, it's not just a transaction. It's not like you have a... Even, even this morning, uh, I stopped by Starbucks to get my morning coffee, and they said, would you like a receipt? No, it's not necessary. But even if I had a receipt, what if, what if the servant had a receipt, the canceled debt, and he waved it around? Like, I've got you now, right? You, you can't do anything to me because I've got this piece of paper. You canceled the debt. I got the proof. I got you over the barrel. That's the transaction mentality. That's Telicus' problem. I'm far too just. We're always trying to do the math. because we're trying to justify ourselves. We're trying somehow in all of the mechanics of that, the arithmetic of it, to say, I merit this, and you don't. And I'm going to work out my vengeance. I'm going to work out my hurt. I'm going to work out all this stuff on you, because here are the calculations. But you see... We've not fathomed in our hearts because our hearts are desperately wicked, Jeremiah says. Our hearts can't do that math. And we don't even fathom our wickedness. But it's there that math doesn't matter. It's there that grace, when it touches that heart, See, that's why at the end of the parable when Jesus speaks, he's no longer just using the story. He's speaking now 
on the strength of the story. And he says, unless you forgive from your heart. Mark those words, unless you forgive from your heart. We're going to be brought up short. We're going to catch ourselves. We're going to start down that path, and then it's going to be, wait a minute. That's not Jesus. That's not the me in Christ. That's not his forgiveness at work. And then we start making course corrections. And that's how we grow in Christ. And that's how Christ starts to show himself in us. We're so quick to get into the math of it. How does this work out? Or we'll think, what does this mean for the, for the nation if I act like this? What's this mean? What, what, am I, what are these people going to think of me? What, are, what am I going to teach my kids? It, it, you know what I'm talking about? But that's where our faith stops, and we start doing the math. We start doing the calculations and the figures. And Jesus says, cut that out. Reckon this. Calculate this, what God has done for you, what he has forgiven, his grace. That's the second word in the New Testament that's the most important word for forgiveness. It's the word that means to give a gift out of favor. It's the word grace. Grace, the very word upon which all the other grace language is built upon, in certain, you know where it's used? Paul uses it a lot. He, and we translate it this way, forgive others as God has forgiven you. Forgive others. Show grace. Do I fail? Yeah. Yeah, you can ask Shelly, you can ask my kids. But I'm not finished yet, and I'm trying to do better all the time. Just don't quit and say, ah, that's a bunch of faith stuff that's so out of this world, it's crazy. No. Because if that's crazy, this is even crazier. This little piece of bread in this cup. This funny little thing we do. Now, it's not funny to us because we believe it. We take this bread, we drink this cup, because it tells us a great truth that we never want to forget, that we are forgiven people. We are his forgiven people. And that's where we need to begin every moment of every day. And know his forgiveness, his grace. Know that he is for us, that he loves us. And out of those riches, we find a way to walk with Jesus in the day-to-day stuff of everyday life. On the night he was betrayed, he took bread, blessed it, broke it, and he said, this is my body which is for you.